All right. Well, good morning, everybody. We are going to continue our morning in prayer. Um, as we do with most Sundays, we're going to pray for another church in our community and then also be praying for a people group. Um, so this morning, we're going to be praying for uh, Van Sickle Baptist Church just down the road, and we're going to be praying for a subset of the Uyghur people group that are um, dispersed in the country of Kazakhstan. <clears throat> so please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much that you give us the opportunity to come together this morning and enjoy you. Lord, we ask that you would watch over um, Van Sickle Baptist Church as they do the same this morning in our community, that they would be filled with your glory and that you would be with them, um, watch over their pastor, David Upchurch, um, as he's new to this community, new to this church as of February. Um, I ask that you would strengthen him um, and his wife, uh, Kendra, just be with them, and may their marriage be fueled by, and his pastoring be fueled by your glory, um, and just be built up in that. Lord, too, we want to lift up the, the Uyghurs um, in Kazakhstan. Lord, as we're digging into a book written to people in dispersion, um, we just want to recognize and lift up these people in dispersion, um, away from their home country, um, homeland in northwest China. Lord, we ask that in Kazakhstan, out of the almost three and a half, or 350,000 people that have only 0.01% of which are Christian, that you would make the scriptures accessible to them and that the slightly less restrictions that they face in Kazakhstan would be an opportunity for them to hear the gospel and that they could take that back to their homeland um, and just be built up in that. Lord, we ask you to watch over them and that you would send people, whether that's people from here, maybe even in this very room, or from people um, that are already over at work in the neighboring areas. Lord, we know that you love this people and that you are calling them to you. And finally, Lord, this morning I ask that you would just be with us this morning. Um, just speak through me that we together may come before your glory and enjoy it. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, the first time I had the opportunity to preach was back during the season of Advent, and um, Jessica and I actually ended up with COVID, so thankfully Greg Fields filled in for me. Um, and then the second time I had the opportunity to speech, to preach, um, the entire state kind of froze over and shut down. <laughs> so when this time came around, and I realized that this was the morning after we're shooting up large explosions over crowds of people... I was like, are we sure this is a good idea? Morris, have you thought this through? <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it's good to be here this morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jason Brown. Uh, I'm a life group shepherd here. I um, work with the youth group, the young adult group. Um, by trade, I work down the road um, in the rooms with no windows where we just stare at computers all day. So this is not particularly natural to me. Um, for those of you that do know me a little bit, there's a good chance that at some point, as you got to know me, 
either really confused you or you got, even in some cases, a little frustrated with me. Because one of the things you do when you get to know people is you ask them questions like, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite food or music or sports team or really anything? And my answer to that is usually, well, I don't have favorites or um, I don't know. I don't really care. And uh, for some people, this is weird. Other people say maybe it's about the Enneagram. Um, maybe it's just the fact that I'm a little indecisive at times or all the time. But regardless, we're going to be talking about favoritism this morning. Um, we've been in the book of James, so if you would, please turn to James chapter 2 and please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in this good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of heaven, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you out into court? <clears throat> are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the, whole, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> All right, you may be seated. <clears throat> so before we dig into this, I want to... Um, kind of introduce James a little bit more, adding some context is going to help us understand what's going on in this passage. Um, we've talked before about how um, this is written by James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, and he was a leader and elder in the church in Jerusalem. Um, in addition to that, this is some of the earliest New Testament writing that we have, um, perhaps the earliest New Testament writing. It may have even predated a lot of the written-down accounts of the gospel. And that this, in the very beginning, you see that this is written to Jews in dispersion. And this is believed to be actual ethnic Jews, because at the time, the church was still primarily Jewish. Um, and this dispersion that he's talking about, there's two different things to look at with this. One, you see this dispersion in the book of Acts in the early church. You have the stoning of Stephen and Saul comes in and ravages the church, and there's a dispersion. And then Paul's converted, and the Jews are still persecuting the church. Then 
Paul leaves for a little while, and you see this brief little period of peace, and then Acts chapter 12 comes along, and Herod's like, man, I want to make the Jews happy. Let's kill James. So he kills James, put, puts Peter in prison, and this is different James, James the brother of John. Um, and it's in this period where you first see this James being mentioned as a leader in the church in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and it's likely sometime around here that this letter was written, um, addressing both those that were in the dispersion there, but also um, in a greater sense from how this term dispersion or the diaspora is used throughout the Bible. It's referring to people who were in exile in the Old Testament, either under the Assyrian or the Babylonian exile. And these are likely descendants of those people who never returned to Jerusalem, but are living out there around the world, which at this time was the Roman Empire. So it was likely written to these people sometime probably in the mid to late 40s, probably around um, either right before or during Paul's first missionary journey. <clears throat> but another interesting thing, you see in this passage that we read this morning, he uses the term assembly, not church. And it's actually the same word for a synagogue. So it's likely that his audience included many non-Christian Jews, and this would be in keeping with how we see when Paul would go into a new city, he would go into the synagogues and reason with the Jews, showing them that Jesus is the Christ. And then things would go bad and they'd leave, and that's kind of where the house church came from. But um, the bottom line here is that James is writing to a very Jewish audience in a Roman context. Another thing about the book of James that I have not seen until I really spent a lot of time with it is understanding that James carries a lot of the themes and the teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, scholars say that there's at least somewhere around like 36 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. And we may not recognize it directly because it's not a direct quotation of what we have quoted in the Gospels, but that's also because they weren't written yet. He's going off of what's being shared orally around the church in Jerusalem at this time. And he's, some of these people may be familiar with Jesus, but maybe not his teachings. So you can look at this as James from a pastoral perspective. He's teaching them what Jesus taught. And he's also providing some commentary and explanation of here's what you do with, Jesus with what Jesus taught. Um, and similarly, in the way that much of Jesus' teaching was put against um, in, in contrast to the Pharisees, so too James is contrasting a lot of what he's saying against the Pharisees. He's not introducing some new workspace religion that a lot of people have accused this book of in the past. In fact, what he's doing is he's completely contrasting it to the workspace religion of the Pharisees. A couple themes in the book of James, you see trials and temptations, wisdom, and their riches and poverty. Our passage deals with riches and poverty this morning, but that gets a lot of airtime later, and we're going to see how this is actually potentially used as an illustration more towards trials and temptations. So we're going to look at verse 1, and we're probably going to spend almost all of our time in verse 1 this morning. Um, you know, we talk about like unpacking a passage. We got a big room, and we're going to do the heavy lifting to unpack you know, the recliner, and then we're just going to sit back and kind of read through how that informs the rest of the passage. 
Um, and we're going to start in verse 1 with, what is the command? What is this telling us to do? And we're going to dig a little deeper and see how there's also a how and a why for how we fulfill this command and why we fulfill this command. So looking back at verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now the command here is don't show partiality. You know, I used to take this verse as kind of a joke when people give me a hard time about not having favorites. I'd be like, James 2.1, it's not biblical to have a favorite color. I, you know, mac and cheese or pizza, I can't choose because James 2.1. But, as you might have guessed, that's not what James is saying. If you look at what's actually being said here, this word, some translations uh, translate it as respect of persons. That is not a particularly common phrase that I use, so um, trying to look a little bit deeper, like what is it saying? It's you're receiving somebody according to their face. The idea here is you're judging somebody based on their outward appearance. So this is talking about people, not food or music or sports teams. And the original language here indicates that this is a plural event, something that has wide-ranging applications, something that was prevalent in his audience. Also, um, what's being portrayed here as you read through the rest of the passage is it's not just the fact of favoritism or partiality to the rich, but it's partiality to the rich to the detriment of the poor. People who are seeking status in the favor of man by taking these levels and putting people down here and trying to get up here in the level. So in doing that, you're um, it's detrimental to the poor who are of lower status in this context. Um, we're going to spend a lot of time in wealth as we go through this book, Wealth and Poverty. But wealth has a way of turning people inward. You miss what's going on around you. It's estimated that at this time, approximately 10% of the population at any given moment was either poor enough or sick enough that their actual lives were in danger. 10%. And this was probably true in his audience, if not higher than 10%. So what he's saying is like, when you're showing favor to the rich people to the detriment of the poor and ignoring what they need, there's, it could literally be a death sentence. You can't ignore that. So then the question is, are we supposed to be partial to the poor? Is there a reverse partiality here that's going on? And I don't think that's the issue. When you look at the Levitical law, in chapter 1, God goes out of his way to make allowances within the law, within the sacrificial system, so that it would be accessible to everybody. You can bring a huge heifer. Or you, if you can't afford that, which most people couldn't, you could bring a goat or a sheep. Or even more so, if you're really struggling, you can just bring a dove. God accepts all of those equally. So, too, if you keep reading through the book of Leviticus, you get to chapter 19, and it specifically says you are not to show partiality to the rich or the poor. What's going on here is this, this, he's addressing the sinful nature where we show partiality, creating inequality, where God said, 
we're on level playing fields. God goes out of his way to make all these different allowances so that whatever your status is in this world, we can approach God. And so if in our churches we're taking this level playing field and putting these structures of man, this hierarchy, back in place, he's saying, don't do that. Before God, you're either guilty or convicted. You either have received mercy or you have not received mercy. You either have life or you have death. Sometimes in our context, we do need to take extra steps towards those who are less fortunate to show them that on the eternal scale, we're on level playing field. Because God is not partial in his judgment. He's also not partial in just simple sustaining life. Matthew talks about how God gives rain and sun to the good and the evil, to the just and the unjust. But God is partial on eternal matters. Only in Christ can we come before God. So when we come in and we try to take these statuses of the world and implement them in the church by showing partiality, we're taking this equality, this level playing field of you're either this or that. And we're saying, well, you're this, but this and that, and I'm over here and you're over there. And we're doing things that are contrary to what God's already established. Now, this is one of the key themes of the book of James, is this riches and poverty and how all that plays out. But what he's doing here, too, is he's going back to the points he already made in chapter 1 about this um, taking the status of the rich and humbling them, and taking the status of the poor and raising them up, making us all on the level playing fields. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper and kind of see what, this, what is going on. So I'm going to turn, or we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 1. If you would, um, turn there. We're going to start in verse 22 and read through um, verse 1 of chapter 2. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the, ones who, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans, and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's wrapping up points he started in chapter one. And I think a lot of times this chapter, or this verse one of chapter two, I read of like, no partiality and just keep right on going. But what happens here? is he addresses it Jesus. This is only the second time in the book of James when he addresses Jesus directly. The other part is in the introduction. And this is also the last time that Jesus is particularly mentioned. Everything else is just allusions to Jesus' teaching. Some people even accused James, um, or like 
later people and generations of adding in Jesus to make this a Christian book because it didn't have many mentions of Jesus in there. But we believe that this has been in there since the beginning. And the idea that Jesus is mentioned here is important. <clears throat> the other thing that I read over, have read over in the past, is this term that James gives to Jesus, the Lord of glory. He says, as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I read over that as just like, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. It's just, it's kind of a throwaway line. We read over these things. But the original language doesn't say Lord of glory. It just says glory. You could read this verse saying, My brothers, do not in favoritism hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, glory. Or in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. This idea of glory throughout the Bible is associated with the localized presence of God. You see it in the temple, in the tabernacle, in Ezekiel's vision of the heavenly throne, glory is the presence of God, something that's here. And glory, nowadays, if you hear somebody talking about that, you think they're probably talking about something related to Christianity. You don't hear glory much outside of Christian terms and Christian circles. But glory is not uniquely or originally Christian. And in fact, at the time that this was written, it may not have even been a common term used in Christian circles. James is writing to people throughout the Roman Empire, and the term glory had very powerful pagan undertones. It described the aim of those who sought to gain renown. Glory would shine the light of heroism on somebody, but it was something that was, the, this light was cast on them by their peers and their countrymen. It was something that was bestowed on somebody by those who witnessed and remembered their great deeds. It was not some self-generated reality, but it was a matter of recognition by one's peers. The Roman comprehension of the good life was centralized around this idea of glory, longing for the recognition of one's countrymen for my great deeds. This would have brought to mind immediately images of Caesar great Olympians and athletes, military generals, or maybe poets, uh, rhetoricians, or philosophers. The only form of immortality for the Romans that they knew or that they sought after was to achieve glory, to have persistence and continuation in cultural memory. This was the motivation behind all the greatness that Rome accomplished. In 19 BC, so go back a few years from when this was written, Virgil, the great poet of Rome, wrote his Aeneid. And this book became like a moral and spiritual handbook for the Romans. It defined what their measure of worldly achievements was, how they achieved glory, what was important, how to get it, and why we should get it. This was so ingrained in the Roman culture that at the beginning of the 5th century, St. Augustine was still fighting against this concept of glory that was there from the Roman context. In fact, Christians worried so much 
that attributing glory to God was presenting him in the idea of Roman glory, where he was in need of human recognition, or even worse, in need of recognition by his peers, surely that's not us. That as the church moved to using Latin, they actually didn't use the term glory. The term glory in Latin in Christian circles didn't come around until the end of the fourth century. It was kind of held at arm's length of like, that's, that's not properly Christian. And then when they did start using it, they made very clear distinctions that this glory was not something bestowed by observers, but it was of the substance of God, something that emanated from within the divine. Jesus himself had to contradict this idea of glory in John chapter 5. Verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from people. What you view as glory is not what I'm talking about. But even more than that, James is not just addressing the Roman view of glory. He's also addressing the Jewish view of glory. You see, in the Jewish view of glory, the Pharisees, they sought glory. They sought status. They sought the glory of man. Paul addresses how the Pharisees sought glory in Romans chapter 9. Starting in verse 30, he says, What then... Or what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Skipping down a little bit to chapter 10, verse 3. It says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, for being ignorant of the glory of God, They were seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Pharisees missed the point of the law, that it was pointing to Jesus, to his glory, because they were too busy trying to establish their own glory. So James here, he's pointing to all of that in this one simple phrase. You know, we talk about like a mic drop when somebody says something when nothing more needs to be said. James just did a mic drop via name drop. He's like, Lord Jesus Christ, glory, done. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and gives us the rest of the chapter of what do we do now that we have stared intently into this glory? Because to walk away would be foolish we would be deceiving ourselves if we didn't change after walking and seeing this glory. Um, Just to make sure everybody's still awake, we're going to show a a quick video clip to kind of illustrate what James is talking about here, of when people are seeking the glory of man instead of the glory of Christ. 
Oh, that's not it. <laughs> Is it working? It's, it's a short video, but I hope you get the point. <laughs> you see, scientists these days, you know, they, they've studied these nocturnal insects, moths, um, whatever bug that was, um, and they've realized that they use, like, these celestial lights for navigation, most particularly the light of the moon. And these artificial lights come along and they disrupt their navigation and it attracts them even to their death. Can you imagine like being out in a beautiful moonlit night, sky full of stars, beautiful, right? Great weather, no bugs. And instead of enjoying that, you're just staring at a light bulb. That's what's happening here. And maybe instead of a light bulb, maybe you're attracted to a fire. Because, let's be honest, fire is cool. We were all staring at exploding things in the sky last night, so, right? That's cool. But for a moth, the fire is even more deadly than a light bulb. Something seemingly beautiful is even more deadly. Even more so, scientists have discovered that certain species are more attracted to UV lights. So they use that to draw them in to zap them. They build these traps to prey on what they think they want, to draw them in and kill them. What's sad here, we know that moths, as nocturnal creatures, live in a world of darkness. And they're full of these false little lights that seem in any moment much more glorious than the moon, than the light that they were created to follow. But we know that the moon itself doesn't create light. It reflects light, a mirror dimly lit, if you will. That the, the moon is reflecting light that is infinitely more glorious than a light bulb. It is infinitely larger and completely incomparable to a light bulb. If only the moth could just fix their eyes on the glory of the light they were created to follow. Poor, poor Harry. I can just hear James writing to his audience saying, No, Harry, no! Don't look to the glory of man. Fix your eyes on the glory of Christ. He's saying that this preferential glory of man pales in comparison and is completely extinguished when one looks into the glory of Christ. And so too a religion that seeks the glory of man, such as what the Pharisees were promoting, is defiled and is worthless and is burnt away in comparison to the glory of Christ. The Romans sought glory to achieve immortality via being remembered in culture. The Pharisees sought to earn immortality 
by their own works and the glory they received from man. But God looks for people whose works seek his glory. Only there do we find immortal glory, and we find that glory without partiality. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. In the light of the glory of Christ, there is no partiality. You're either in his glory or you're not. So then how does this inform how we read the book of James? How do we read the book of James in the light of his glory? Well, let's go back to our passage in James. Starting in verse 2, now that we've gone through verse 1. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Jesus pointed out this exact same thing to the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. This is a parable of the wedding feast. When he noticed that those... that the, <clears throat> Let me start over. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how... They chose places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit at the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this person, and you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you arrive, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher then you will be honored in, present, in the presence of all who sit at that table. For everyone who exalts himself, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James is pointing back to the teaching of Jesus. Again, going back to what he was talking about in chapter 1, that in Christ, those who are of high status in the world are being brought low. Those who are of low status are being brought high. That's how we see in the glory of Christ. All this structure and artificial status that we have put in place in the world is burnt away. What he's saying here is don't miss Jesus by adding status 
and seeking status and judging based on status, based on this outward appearance. Paul says, too, that in Christ, there is no distinction. In our churches and in really our daily lives, to judge somebody based off of their worldly status is to contradict what God's already at work in doing. God's getting past those, moving past the statuses of this world. And we're saying, no, I can judge better than you, God. James is saying, don't do that. When you do that, you're doing that solely for the glory of man. You get nothing out of that, nothing that's eternal. So going on, picking up in verse 5. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom of heaven, which he has promised to those who love him? It's as if James here is again echoing Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, their riches, they can be really enticing. Cool little light bulbs, maybe in some sort of bug zapper level beauty. But that's all you get out of it is a zap. Or the poor people, those who are poor in spirit, they get the kingdom of heaven because they are, they are not trapped by the things of this world. Think about the rich young ruler. He did everything right, but he couldn't be humbled and walk away from the glory that he had received in his riches, the glory he had in this world. Going back to the text, picking up in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you out into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Aren't the rich people, the Pharisees, the ones who are of high status in this world, the ones who put you in the position you're in now, in this uh, dispersion, they p- drug you out of your houses, drug you out of the synagogues, and you had to flee. If you're doing this, if you're showing even something as simple as partiality, you're being just as bad as they were. <clears throat> They're the ones that oppressed you. They're the ones that blasphemed Christ by their actions. If you do even simple little things that create divisions among God's people, you're right there with them. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. And if you commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
Now, the Pharisees were extremely righteous, but their religion showed partiality, and it didn't bear good fruit that cared for the less fortunate and the needy. You know, it's ironic that James uses here, um, and I would say this is intentional irony, he uses this um, term, you do well. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This is not some congratulatory pat on the back. What he's saying here is a stern reminder and perhaps even a rebuke. You see this down in verse 19, um, later on in chapter 2. He's saying, you do well, but so do the demons. What he's saying here is, you're doing great, but it's not saving you. You're missing the point of everything. The Pharisees did perhaps better than anybody ever, except for Jesus, at keeping the law. They did well, but they missed the point. What James is calling them to here is the same standard that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, that we must fulfill the whole law and the intent of the law, that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. The law is only fulfilled in Christ, not the burdens and punishments and works of the Pharisees in the name of righteousness and the glory of man, but only in Christ. Only in Christ and his glory does the glory of man fade. Now, to finish this out in verse 12 and 13, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here lies true liberty. In judgment and the law, right? It's it's really confusing reading it without understanding what James is getting at here. He's saying, one... We are able to show mercy because we see in the light, in a new light, in the light of Christ's glory. And this light brings equity, either in life or in death. And this law has been fulfilled by Christ. <clears throat> and in Christ, we are on the life side. We were dead. Our sin was put to death with us, but we were made alive in Christ. And we have been liberated to live in the light of his glory as one unified body, his bride, the church. Now, I just have one application point for you this morning with, you know, a few sub-points, but... <laughs> What do we do with this? What is James really telling us to do? Well, you could say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. John 5, chapter 40, or verse 44 says, 
How can you believe when you seek glory from one another? Do not seek the glory that comes only from God. That's what we do. We seek the glory of Christ. Christ is inherently, innately glorious, self-generating glory. In our trials, whether it's dispersion or sickness or loss, grief, financial hardships, you name it, the glory of Christ and his work, it may seem like a dim moon. It may seem like there's a cloud in front of it. But Christ's fullness is still there, and we still need it. And it still gives light to this dark world, even when we don't feel like it's there. We know that when it's hard, we can say with confidence that Christ and his glory is truly better than the glory of man. We can say it's better than wealth, better than status, better than comfort, better than health, better than politics, better than pornography, better than relationships, better than a new car, food, our job, a promotion, our family. Christ is better. So where do we find Christ in his glory? James is writing to people who, in their dispersion, maintained their identity as the local church. We find Christ in the local church. This letter was written to them. And he's addressing the Pharisees who, their religion became an individual pursuit of glory instead of a corporate identity enjoying the glory of Christ. We need to be a part of each other's lives and not just on Sunday mornings. We need to be a part of each other's lives throughout the week so that when we're flying towards the bug zapper, we can yell, no, Harry, no. We need a friend to step in and tell us that and point us towards the sun, towards the true glory. Second, we find Christ in his word. So much of what James is saying here is pointing directly to what Christ already said. He's pointing to the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings that he had. We also find in the words of James, as we see this morning. Um, and then finally, we find Christ and his glory in a religion that is free from the burdens of the law and free of divisions and distinctions put in place by man. This is something quite different from the Pharisees. And we may think that we've moved past it, that we're not doing that. But we are. Cliques, it would be perhaps a modern term for it, um, are prevalent among churches. And I would not say that Crosspoint is uh, exempt from that by any means. But we have to work hard to pre prevent that. We shouldn't judge based on appearances or people that we are comfortable with, but we should offer mercy because we're all on a level playing field on the eternal scale. We are one in Christ, and we can truly enjoy his glory. Um, at this point, we're going to move into the supper, and I'll ask the, the worship team to come back up here. 
And our, our supper passage will be from the, the book of 1 Corinthians. And I just want to read the first part of that. Um, and then while they start playing, we're going to have the elders up at these two tables um, offering the, uh, the bread and the juice. Um, so come up during the song, and then after the first song, we'll take this together as one body. But let me get here real quick. I have way too many bookmarks this week. Paul in 1 Corinthians addresses the Corinthian church. He says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better or for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Life and death, glory or no glory. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The Corinthian church was seeking the status and glory of those who had wealth and food and drink, and they were doing that to the detriment of the poor, creating divisions in the church. So, as we come and take the elements, um, just spend some time in prayer about where you may need to address divisions Um, or ways you move in which that are detrimental to the poor. Um, So we'll go ahead and start singing, and then we'll, we'll get back together and take it in a minute.